on this glorious Shabbat day. Glad you're here this morning, and uh, those of you that are online, glad, glad that you're with us this morning. I'm Bobby Smith, and I'm going to be your 10 o'clock teacher this morning. Um, and what I'm going to teach is a presentation on this week's Torah portion, which is called Nassau. Uh, or um, Nassau means make an accounting or elevate or lift up the nation. So that's what we'll be studying this morning. But before we get started, let's start as we always should with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabashamayam, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you so much for this glorious day, for all the people that are here today to hear your word, for this wonderful congregation that we have here at Beth Adonai and what it means to each of us. Father, thank you for the gift of life and for your Shabbat and for how important your Shabbat is and for us having that knowledge and honoring your Shabbat. Be with us this morning, open our hearts and our minds, that we may hear in your word, and it may touch us as you would individually want each of us touched. May my words be your words, my thoughts be your thoughts, and what everyone hears is your word for them. In Yeshua's name I pray, amen. So, um, I always like to do the Torah portions when we can because that's what you study on Shabbats. And the Torah portion is every week there's a Torah portion, 52 weeks a year except for when the holidays are. Obviously we, we have special Torah readings during the, um, during the holidays, during the, the festivals. But today's Torah portion, Nassau, comes from Numbers chapter 4, verse 21, through chapter 7, verse 89. It is the longest Torah portion in the scriptures. It is extremely long because of the way it ends with the gifts of the 12 tribes. Um, I need to credit, because of uh, the research I do and where, where the, um, the teachings coming from today, are from sources. A, a, a lot of these words are not mine. There are, they are words from people that, I've, uh, that I respect, that I study, and that I, um, um, I wouldn't give you words I didn't believe in, but, but, but they're some of their words. First is uh, FFOZ and Daniel Lancaster. I w did a lot of research from Torah 1 and Torah 5 um, publications. Art Scrolls, commentary on the Torah uh, from Rashi, uh, the Art Scroll Kamash, the Midrash Rabbah, and Walk Numbers by Jeffrey Enoch Feinberg. So, Nassau means to lift up or elevate. It's a Hebrew word for lift up or elevate. Lift up the heads of the sons of Gershon is how this week's Torah portion begins. Make an accounting of the sons of Gershon. This Torah portion finishes up the census of the Levites, that was underway at the end of last week's Torah portion as we began the book of Bamidbar, which is the book of Numbers. Before it goes on to discuss the purification of the camp, the ritual for a woman that was suspected of adultery, the laws of what I term as the Nazarite, some people call it Nazarite, or the, it's a vow, the Nazarite vow, the priestly benediction, or as some folks say, the Aaronic benediction. 
and the gifts of the heads of the twelve tribes which they brought to dedicate the altar of the tabernacle. There are 18 of the 613 commandments in this week's Torah portion. There are seven positive commandments and 11 negative commandments. Most of them deal with the Levites, the priest, and the Nazarite. This week's Torah portion opens with a continuation of the numbering of the Levitical families. Last week's reading began with the census of the Levites and concluded with the family of Kohath. This week's portion records the reckonings of Gershon and Merari in addition to the details of the service that they rendered in the tabernacle. This is a little um, depiction of the tabernacle and how the camps were around the tabernacle. The families of the Levites camped about the tabernacle to protect the Israelites from wandering or blundering, as it may be, into the tabernacle and being struck dead for inadvertent trespassing. The Levitical guard protected the sanctuary from defilement and sacrilege, and they guarded the layman from the danger inherent in hosting the living God in their midst. It was God's, um, I guess, edict that you had to be ritually pure to enter into his presence. And the Levites were protecting the Israelites from coming into the sanctuary and not being um, ritually pure, which would endanger their lives. The mission entailed ensuring that the worshipers were in a state of ritual purity before they entered. Anyone unclean from things like leprosy, venereal emission, flux, which was an interesting word to, to uh, so it's like an emission from your body. Um, diarrhea could be a flux. Corpse contamination. They all had to leave the camp. The plain reading of the Torah seems to indicate that anyone beset with one of the, these three types of ceremonial uncleanliness had to go outside the encampments of the tribes until he or she underwent what's known as purification. The sages did not accept this interpretation. They explained that this rule refers primarily to the camp of the Shekinah, the, the, the Holy One, God. That is, the sanctuary. No one in a state of ritual impurity may enter the sanctuary. Rashi explains that the expulsion of the unclean from the camp as follows. Three camps compromise, comprise the encampment of Israel. Inside the curtains of the tabernacle court was the camp of the Shekinah. So if you look at the tabernacle, most of you are familiar with the tabernacle. The, um, the covered area in the middle, I need a pointer or something, but the covered area in the middle that's what's comprom comprising the, um, the, the first part. And inside that, that area, the only people that went in there were the Levites or the priests. They were the only ones that could do work inside there. No one outside of Israel, the, a regular Israelite, would have entered that, that area of the Shekinah. Now, the Holy of Holies is inside that room. You have the, uh, the part in front that's got the... the um, altar of incense, 
the table of the, the show, showbread, the table of presents, and then the, um, the menorah. The camp of Israel extended from the camp of the Levites to the end of the camp of, Ho camp of hosts. So your first section was the, the part that was covered. The second section was the courtyard. And then outside of that was the third section. One who has leprosy is sent out of all three camps. One who has a venereal omission is, per is permitted to remain in the camp of Israel, but is sent out of the camp of the Shechinah and the Levite camp. One made impure by contact with a corpse is permitted to remain within the camp of the Levites, but is sent from the camp of the Shechinah. During the days of the Holy Temple, the three camps corresponded to the three zones in the city of Jerusalem. Um, that's another picture of the tabernacle and the camps. This is a picture of Jerusalem. The camp of the Israelites extended from the walls of the city to the Temple Mount. The camp of the Levites extended from the edges of the Temple Mount to the Nicanor Gate that separated the court of the women from the court of Israel. And the camp of the Shechinah extended from the Nicanor Gate to the Holy of Holies. Now, this is set up a little bit differently than what we just saw in the, um, the tabernacle or the camps because it's not a circle that works out. To the left is the, is the Temple Mount, and the city of Jerusalem is all the way to the right in this, in this picture. The, um, the city of Jerusalem is high, was high on a hill. That's why you're always coming down from Jerusalem because it's up on a hill. And it was fortified. With, um, with walls, with, with rock walls. So the gold temple, um, the Nicanor Gate would have been the entrance to that gold temple, the part that's inside the temple where the Holy of Holies would have been housed and all the menorahs and all of the, um, the vestibules of, of, the, uh, of the temple. The commandment to send ceremonially unclean persons from the camp applies to Levitical authorities in Jerusalem with the temple and Levitical system in place. It doesn't apply to us today. It applied to when the temple was in existence, when the tabernacle was in existence. Because today, even when, when those things were in existence, you could be unceremonially um, unclean and enter into a synagogue. The camp of the Le Levites, oh, I'm sorry, I messed that up. I'm going to do this again. The commandment to send ceremonially unclean persons from the camp applies to Levitical authorities in Jerusalem with the temple and the Levitical system in place, except in the case of lepers. It did not require the unclean to leave the city, neither did it permit the unclean from attending the synagogue or other assemblies outside of the temple. The commandment of sending the unclean from the camp informs the imagery of John's vision of the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelations. The apostle saw a city without a temple because the whole city had the sanctity of the sanctuary. Picture this now. John saw that nothing unclean could enter Jerusalem. In this passage, uncleanliness is used metaphorically to refer to, refer to the wicked. So in essence, what he was seeing when God was, was establishing his presence on earth was that, un, that, that, that the... Um, the whole area became the Holy of Holies. 
because the holy was there. The Levites are what we call the tabernacle worship team. In, verse four, in chapter 4, verse 23, the Levites were responsible for transporting the tabernacle. In addition, they were to perform the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. According to the rabbis, the service the Levites were required to provide for sacrificial service was music. We have here at Beth and I what you call praise and worship. It's a beautiful thing. And music is godly. The Levites were to sing songs to accompany the sacrifices. As the priests splashed the blood on the altar sides and offered up the sacrifices in smoke, the Levites were offering up sacrifices of prayful, praiseful songs. David and the psalm writers composed songs to be sung by the Levites as part of the temple services. The book of Psalms, Tephilim, is the hymn book of the Levitical choir. Cleansing the camp. As the children of Israel, this is in Numbers 5-2, as the children of Israel prepared to set out across the wilderness on their journey to the promised land, the Lord told them to purify the camp. He instructed them to send out of the camp anyone who might transmit ritual unfitness. Rashi explains that this does not mean that they were sent out into the wilderness. They were sent out from the inner camps of the Levites and the tabernacle in order to protect the ritual fitness of the holy place. Yeshua, in the Brit Kodeshah, or the Apostolic Scriptures, would rebuke the Pharisees for cleaning the outside of the cup, but not the inside of the cup. In other words, paying attention to ritual detail while ignoring moral failings of their hearts. Sin is a big deal. It creates a barrier between us and God. It accumulates as a load of guilt that calluses our hearts and stains our souls. It impedes our prayers and invites punishment from heaven. The only antidote for sin is confession, repentance, and the washing of our Messiah. Confession and repentance work together. Confession is the first step toward repentance. Numbers 5 gives us the recipe for repentance. When we have sinned, we need to stop committing that sin, confess our sin to God, express remorse over the sin, resolve not to do it again, and make any necessary rep restitution or even reparations to the victims of our sin. What is sin? Because we hear this, if, if, you, if you Google it, and Dr. Google, and, and you, and you ask what is sin, you'll be amazed at all the answers that you get. But sin is quite simply just the transgression of the Torah's commandments. That's how you define sin. Without the Torah, we would not know what sin is. Sin is, God gives us in the Torah what it is that we are not supposed to do, and that is the definition of sins, just transgression God's commandments. When we sin, we are not to remain in sin, nor are we to passively accept the fact that we are sinners. Now that's important there. 
We don't just passively accept the fact that we are sinners. The Lord commands us to strive against sin. We must humble ourselves to confess the sin and then turn away from it. Even the smallest sin should be confessed. Confession should be made privately, but audibly before God, directly to God. Confession is the first step toward repentance. The first step of obedience to Yeshua requires a confession and renunciation of sin. The life of discipleship requires daily confession and repentance. Sometimes a person grows weary of his or her own failings. Then the evil inclination, which is Hebrew in Hebrew is the Yetzer Hara, takes over and says, Did I not just confess this same sin yesterday and resolve not to do it again? When this happens, we must persevere and remember that God is, for, is a forgiving God. And if we continue to work at it and truly turn to God for help, he will allow us to conquer our failings. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, as it says in Luke 15:7. Confession should be made audibly in prayer to God, but it need not be made in front of others or another person. It does not require an intermediary. In Judaism, pen penitents need not confess sins to priests or rabbis. Nevertheless, accountability is very important. One should seek out a trusted brother or sister in whom they can confide. It's always good to have accountability. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, James says in James 5.16. Confessing transgressions to a trusted friend and expressing deep remorse over the sin to another person include, introduces and includes a level of accountability. When we sin against another person, causing some of them loss, we must confess the sin, but we must also prove our repentance by providing restitution. In most cases, our restitution should include a sincere confession and apology to an individual we have wronged. A person must seek his neighbor's forgiveness before seeking God's. Now, something that's very important is is you won't, don't want to make the sin worse. So if you're going to harm the person by bringing it up to them again, you should, th you should think that through. Do what's in the best interest of the situation. In some cases, the victim has suffered no injury and remains unaware of the offense committed against him or her. In such a case, the person might be unnecessarily hurt to hear one's confession. It may be best to spare the person the injury that would be incurred by the confession and apology. Sometimes the desire to confess sin to a person who does not know about the sin stems just from a selfish desire to relieve one's own feelings of guilt. The confessor is unconcerned with how the apology will emotionally damage the victim. In such cases, a person should employ common sense and a little empathy before offering an apology. In most cases, however, the clear and certain thing to do is to seek out the person you have wronged and apologize. The Torah guides, guides us 
with a proper restitution, typically full repayment, plus 20%. If the sin is against the other person, also resulted in a sin against God, a special offering to God in the temple would also be required when the temple was around. Our next concept we're going to look at from this week's Torah portion is this concept of terumah. There's actually a Torah portion that is entitled terumah. In the days of the temple and Levitical system, the penitent person sometimes paid restitution to the priesthood. If a person's victim was no longer alive and the victim had no redeemer or kinsman to whom restitution could be paid, then the penitent sinner gave the restitution to the priest as if it was a teramah, the sacred portion separated out of the crops. The word teramah describes the priestly portions as holy gifts to the priest. The teramah is not the same as the tithe. The tithe is 10% that we've heard about all of our lives, right? That we've been in, in, the, um, in the church or the synagogue. That 10% was dedicated to go to the Levites. It was an, a person's agricultural gift to the, to, to the Levites in Israel in order that the Levites may survive. Because the Levites, of which the family of Aaron was a part of, their sole purpose was to um, teach the word of God, but also live the word of God and be the intermediary between the people and God. So they had to be supported because as they went into the land, all the other tribes were given land and they were given a way to make a living. They were given a way to, um, to sustain themselves and prosper. But the Levites had a, had a different, different portion in life and they, they, the, the tithe or was, was set up for them to be able to do that without having to worry about survival. The priest, however, cannot come and demand his portion, this teramah, or help himself to it because it does not belong to him until the farmer has willingly given it to him. Isn't that interesting? Another concept in this week's um, Torah portion is the concept of the sotah. This is found in Numbers uh, chapter 5, verse 12. The Torah takes up the question of a wife who goes astray and is unfaithful to her husband. Men and women are both in danger of straying. The best way to ensure that we do not stray into immorality is to stay far away from that temptation. Now this isn't just true with um, immorality it's true with any kind of sin because when you separate yourself if you never put yourself in a position to where you can sin well not only does it keep you from sinning but it keeps you from ever being accused of the sin because if you were never there if you're if you were never there it's impossible for you to do something right if a person's wife or husband were found alone with another man or woman in Judaism, that would constitute a reasonable basis for su suspicion of immorality. For that reason, 
Orthodox Judaism forbids men and women from spending any time at all alone with members of the opposite sex, except for one's spouse and family members. To modern ears, this sounds preposterous. Well, tell that to Joseph, who found himself in the house of, with his master's wife. Though he did nothing wrong, he was nevertheless suspected of adultery. Not only was he suspected of adultery, he was convicted of adultery. He was imprisoned for being convicted of adultery. And even though it was God's plan, if he would have never been in it, put himself in that position, then the, he would have never had to, to endure what he had to endure. Clear boundaries prevent both sin and the suspicion of sin. If a husband suspected that his wife might have committed adultery, he could bring her to the priesthood and have her subjected to the ordeal of bitter water. That is called the trial by ordeal. And it is found in Numbers chapter 5 verses 13 through 24. The Torah prescribes a ritual. It's a ritual called the trial by ordeal, as I said, for a wife suspected of infidelity. In the ancient world, trial by ordeal was a common way of determining innocence or guilt. Now picture this. Handling hot metal, plunging into boiling water or oil, ingesting poisons, or treading on sharp blades were all methods of trial and ordeal employed by primitive societies in the past. We also remember that Daniel went through a trial by ordeal by going into the lion's den, right? So this is a kind of a common thing in, um, in back in the day, as they say. It's akin to the witch test whereby a woman was tossed into the sea while tied, up, while tied up to see if she would float. Apparently, witches could float. When conducting a trial by ordeal, in the traditional superstitious sense, you are relying on divine powers to intervene on behalf of the innocent to prevent them from harm. And that's not a very fair system. But that's what they were doing, right? We are surprised to find such a ritual prescribed by the Bible. But in the Torah, a woman suspected of adultery was giving the test of drinking bitter water. Unlike the heathen versions of the trial by ordeal, the bitter water had no natural malignant effect. Instead of relying on a supernatural response to spare her if she was innocent, the trial of bitter water relied on a supernatural response to condemn her if she was guilty. The absence of reliance on God's direct intervention in all other trials indicates that the case of a woman suspected of adultery is unique. God takes the matter so seriously that he wants to be directly involved in the exoneration of an innocent wife. A case cannot be tried in a Torah court of law unless there are two witnesses present to provide to provide eyewitness testimony. Even if a person is suspected of murder, he cannot be brought to trial 
unless witnesses are present to testify against him. His guilt or innocence cannot be established without these two witnesses. But this wasn't the case for the woman that was committed, that was suspected of adultery. The sages make it clear that the suspicion must be warranted. Though no witness to an illicit act is required, there must be at least a witness to ascertain that the woman had occasion to commit adultery by being secluded with another man. A simple suspicion of adultery was not sufficient cause for the ordeal. There had to be some sort of witness that, that she was in a, in a position where she could have committed adultery. Furthermore, the sages interpreted the words, he is jealous of his wife, in Numbers 5.14, to mean that he had already expressed his jealous suspicions and explicitly warned her in the presence of two witnesses not to go astray with a certain man. If after being warned, she had secluded herself with that fellow, then the husband had legitimate cause for sufficient suspicion and could require this test. According to the Mishnah, the sages of the Second Temple era allowed the ordeal only if these criteria had been met. God is so concerned for the well-being of the marriage bond that he's willing to miraculously intervene. If God is so concerned about marital fidelity, we should be too. While there is no trial of bitter water for men, when a wife suspects her husband or adultery uh, or fornication, if, he's, if a wife suspects a husband. In the world of Torah, a man has the right to issue a certificate of divorce, but a wife does not. Even if she suspected him of adultery, she could not divorce him, whereas he could divorce her on those same grounds. Therefore, the trial by bitter water is meant to prevent a divorce. Since the wife cannot legally divorce her husband, there is no trial for him. Furthermore, the Torah allowed for polygamy. Does this mean that a husband can freely indulge in fornication, whereas his wife must not? No, by no means. If a man had relations with another man's wife, he was liable for the death penalty. If his partner in adultery were tried by bitter water, he would be implicated. If his Paramore was unmarried pending his father's decision, her father's decision. He was liable to marry her or pay her bride price. She became his responsibility. The, the Talmud states that this trial by ordeal was never actually put into practice. So take that for what it is. Peace between a husband and wife takes precedent, even over the sanctity of God's name. If that is the case, we need to be careful about allowing religion or anything else to disrupt marriage. Children need both parents and the benefit of nurturing that that brings. Now, this is the, th we live in a different society than that somewhat, you know. Although we should not forget this. Marriage should always be paramount. It should be serious. We, sh we should always try to uh, make sure marriage, especially when you have children involved, that they are successful and that they work. 
But there are times, there are things that go on. So I'm not trying to, um, to preach to anybody. I'm just giving you the, the thought from the Torah. But God is more interested in the success of your marriage than he is your religious choices or other things that could get in the way. He's so committed to the sanctity of marriage that he's willing to give up his name to be erased to persevere in the peace of the home, as it says in Numbers 5.23. Peace at the home. A husband and wife might not argue about religion, but they may find plenty of other things to argue about. Some homes are like war zones. God desires us to have peace in our homes and in our marriages. Where there is not peace in the home, every other aspect of life and faith is hampered. Few things can be more painful than strife in marriage. Colossians 3, um, verses 18 through 19. Wives, subject yourselves to your husband as is appropriate in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't treat them harshly. For peace to work, the, the wife must subject herself to her husband, and the husband must love his wife. Sometimes that's backwards. Sometimes the husband should, should subject himself to the wife, and the wife must love the husband. But either way, it works. For there to be peace in a home, there must be at least one spouse committed to making peace. The peacemaker cannot be concerned about winning arguments. If you win an argument with your spouse but shatter peace, you have lost. You know, Kathy and I don't argue much. But when we do, it just hurts me to my core. And when I was younger, I did try to win arguments, you know. But I don't do that anymore. That's just to, to have... Um, to ha ha I don't know how all you guys are, how everybody else is, but to have um, strife between me and her, it's just, it, just, it just blows up my world. It just messes me up. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm with it being the peacemaker, even though she's the peacemaker. So we actually have two peacemakers in our home. <laughs> the peacemaker is a source of gentle words instead of harsh words. He or she practices forgiveness instead of bitterness. In a situation where you become angry, ask yourself this. What would Yeshua have me to do in this situation? And this doesn't necessarily have to be with just between husband and wife, right? Because we have arguments amongst each other too. What would Yeshua do in this situation? The answer is always the same. Drop your side of the argument, forgive, point out the positive, and apologize. Now, there are certain things in life, business, whatever, where we have to take our stands, right? More morality, all that sort of thing. But when things aren't that important, just move past it. Do you, do you, just move, move on. You might argue, but it's not fair. Remember. When it comes to marriage, fairness is much less important than peace. So ne the ne next uh, part of the Torah portion this week, this thing's not working, is the Nazarite vow. We find the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. 
A person who desires to live a life of extra piety can opt to take on a Nazarite vow. Now listen, the Nazarite vow is still alive today. You could still do this from certain aspects of it. The problem is you can't complete it. And why couldn't you complete a Nazarite vow? Because you have to have a temple to complete the vow. A person who desires to live this life um, could actually have a lifelong commitment to it. A person can take on a Nazarite vow for as short a period as 30 days. Others like Samson, Samuel, and John the Immerser were lifelong Nazarites or Nazarites. While under the vow, the Nazarite has three main prohibitions. He may not cut his hair. I'm assuming that's she too. He or she may not eat or drink grape products. And he or she may not become richly unfit from a dead body. Becoming a Nazarite allowed a person to take on a higher state of holiness similar to that of the priest. The Nazarite vow seems to have been popular among early believers. John the, the Immerser, as we said, was a Nazarite from birth. Paul, or Saul, was under a Nazarite vow in Acts 8, 18, and in Acts 21, he brought sacrifices for the completion of the vow and paid sacrifices of four other believers who were completing the terms of their vows. According to legend, James, the brother of the Messiah, the brother of Yeshua, was also a Nazarite. Any man or woman who desires to take a special vow of separation to the Lord may take a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow requires an oral declaration before witnesses and a statement of term. The sages regarded the oral declaration as binding even if it was stated in less than explicit language. One would suppose that a Nazarite vow cannot be entered in the absence of the temple since the vow can be completed only by the sacrifices, the special sacrifices and a ceremony in the temple. On the contrary, Jews practiced a Nazarite vow long after the destruction of the temple. Even in the days while the temple stood, Jews living outside the land of Israel undertook Nazarite vows. Since the vow was not temple dependent, Paul was able to undertake a Nazarite vow while he was in the diaspora. Even though the vow was not temple dependent, formal conclusion of the vow was temple dependent, which is why today, if you take a Nazarite vow, just understand you're under it. Though the Nazarite vow can be practiced today, it almost never is. The sages discouraged people from taking Nazarite vows. Yeshua himself discouraged us from taking not just Nazarite vows, but vows, period. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. According to some opinions, a person taking a Nazarite vow consigns himself to, the state of to that state permanently because the vow cannot be formally concluded, as we've discussed. The next subject of this week's Torah portion was what we call the, um, the priestly benediction, or we more commonly call it the Aaronic benediction. It's found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. When you speak so many words, you start to get your tongue tied a little bit. In fact, I'm a little dry. I'll take a sip of water. The Lord commanded Aaron and his sons, the priesthood, to bless Israel with a special three-line blessing. 
The Lord said that when the priests bestow upon this blessing upon the children of Israel, they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. In other words, when the priests pronounce the blessing over the children of Israel, God himself is involved. During the days of the Holy Temple, the priesthood delivered the blessing twice a day. Because the priest recited the blessing in conjunction with the continual burnt offering, the synagogue liturgy incorporated the ceremony into the recitation of the Shimon Israel, the Amidah, the standing prayer. To, score, to correspond with a blessing in the temple at the times of daily sacrifices. There was a sacrifice in the morning and a sacrifice in the evening, and then all sacrifices all through. Just before the congregation prayed the last blessing, the descendants of Aaron approached the front of the congregation, turned to the assembly, lifted their hands in the prescribed manner, just like that, and chanted the priestly benediction. And I think most of them do it like this. In the Talmud, the blessing is referred to as the lifting of the hands. Because when pronouncing the blessing, the priests lift their hands and make a sign of the ancient Hebrew letter Shin with their fingers. The Shin symbolizes the name of God, and it is the first letter of the word Shalom, which makes peace. Here in this uh, slide, it's saying that it's the first word of the name Shaddai. So I've heard both things. So both are true. The shin, is, the shin is the beginning letter of both. Interesting is that in the Sephardic tradition, the priests offered the benediction every Shabbat. But in Eskenazic tradition, tradition, they offered the blessing only during the Yom Tov services of Passover, Shavuot, or Sukkot. The Ashkenazic congregations in Jerusalem, however, follow the Sephardic rule. This probably doesn't happen all the time. And call the priest to offer the blessing every Shabbat. The first line is, may God prosper you and protect you. When the Hebrew says here, the Lord bless you and keep you, safeguard you, the you appears in a singular form. It remains singular throughout the entire blessing. This is surprising because this blessing is meant to be bestowed upon all the children of Israel. When God blesses Israel, he is blessing many as one. It also teaches us that God's blessing is individual. Though we are all part of a greater whole, God still deals with us on an individual level. The first line of the priestly blessing asks God to bless and keep Israel. The priests are asking God to do good for his people and to protect them. May God give to you many blessings that are specified in the Torah, such as those mentioned in Deuteronomy 28, 1-14, that Israel be triumphant over its enemies, superior to other nations, that its crops and business ventures succeed, its offspring and flocks be abundant and healthy, and so on. May your possessions increase as the days of your life increase. God blesses Israel with prosperity to enable the people to devote themselves to Torah study and fulfillment and to continuing to put the word of God into the world daily. The Lord said that when the priests bestow this blessing upon the children of Israel, they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. In other words, when the priests pronounce the blessings over the children of Israel, God himself steps in and offers his blessing. And keep, safeguard you, is elaborate, elaborated from the art scroll Kamash to say, may God protect 
your newly gained blessing of prosperity so that bandits cannot take it away from you. This is a blessing only God can guarantee. By their very virtue, physical blessings are fragile. Because neither health, business conditions, nor tangible assets are permanent and unchanging, nor are the character and, and ambitions of a human being. Therefore, we seek slash need the blessing of God's protection. During the days of the Holy Temple, the priesthood delivered the blessings twice every day. May God pay attention to you and favor you. The second line of the priestly blessing asks God to shine his face upon us and be gracious to us. The Kumash says, may Hashem illuminate his conscience for you and be gracious to you. The sages taught that the shining of God's face refers to the light of Torah, as it says in Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment is a lamp and the Torah is light. May God enlighten you so that you will be capable of perceiving wondrous wisdom of the Torah and God's intricate creation. Having received the blessing of prosperity, we have the peace of mind to go beyond the elementary requirements of survival. Through the teachings of the Torah and the prophets, God sheds light upon his workings of the universe. Thus, we can perceive a purpose of creation that in turn helps us to better understand the greatness and will of our creator. When this happens, we all understand that material benefits of the first blessing came from him rather than by chance or natural causes. And be gracious to you. May, God, may, may he cause you favor to find favor in the eyes of others. May if, but if God has given us benefits of the light of his Torah and of his presence, what more favor could we, be, could we need? A person can have a host of personal attributes, but unless his fellows appreciate and understand him, his relationship with them cannot be positive. The priestly blessing is asking for God's forgiveness of sins and for relationship with him. May God smile at you and give you peace. The third line of the priestly benediction asks for God to lift his face, his countenance on you, and give us peace. One's face is an indication of his attitude towards someone else. When somebody looks at you with that face, they're telling you a lot of things, right? A nice smiling face always brings back a smile. If one is angry at his neighbor, he refuses to look at him. And if one has wronged or indebted his neighbor, he is ashamed to face him. Therefore, when God turns his face to Israel, so to speak, he symbolizes that he's not angry with us, as a result, we can lift up our heads despite our own unworthiness and establish peace, shalom for you. One may have prosperity, health, food, and drink, but if there is no peace, it is all worthless. Therefore, the blessings are sealed with the gift of peace. The priestly benediction says the, saves the best for last, which is the blessing of peace. The Hebrew word shalom means peace but it's much more than that. It's the absence of conflict. It implies wholeness, completeness, and a general sense of well-being. The priestly benediction asks God to smile upon us and give us the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Peace is not simply the absence of war. It is harmony, harmony between conflicting forces. 
Within man, it is the proper balance between the needs of the body and his higher duty of the soul. This is a beautiful prayer. When we hear it, there's just so much there. The last part of our Torah portion this week is the gifts of the 12 tribes. Um, this, I couldn't find a, a drawing or a, a listing of the tribes that was accurate from our Torah portion. Because the gifts of the 12 tribes, one of them did not come from Levi. In the, in the uh, list of the tribes on the right, those are the original tribes. There were, there were, there were, there, there's, there's two lists of 12 tribes. Because on his deathbed, um, Jacob gave the, the family of Joseph, uh, Naphtali and, and Ephraim, the, um, uh, the other two tribes. And Levi is not part of the, part of the, uh, the tribes that, that inherited the land. So that's why I put the map of the tribes on the land on the left. So, so the gifts of the 12 tribes that are described in, at the end of this Torah portion, Levi is not one of the 12 tribes. In essence, jo Joseph's tribe has become two tribes. Western readers find this, this um, passage perplexing. There's 89 verses that complete this Torah portion that repeat the same thing 12 times. If we were to write the Torah by our standard, we would simply say this. All the heads of the tribes brought X, Y, and Z, and we would leave it at that. We would not feel compelled to write this out 12 times. Exactly the same 12 times. Varying only in the names of the tribes and their leaders. From the perspective of the biblical writers, however, repetitions of this made good literature. Passage like, passages like this may have been read aloud at the assemblies of the tribes. We should not neglect the public reading of tribal names. Their names are etched into the stones of the high priest's breastplate and carved onto the gates of New Jerusalem. The names of the 12 tribes represent the totality of Israel, and they are prophetic types of all the tribes and nations of the earth that will one day surround the throne of God. The Torah's picture of the tribal heads bringing their sacrifices and treasures for the dedication of the altar foreshadows the messianic era, when all the tribes of the earth will carry their wealth to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. On the first day of Nisan, the tabernacle was sanctified, and Aaron conferred the priestly blessings for the first time. The leaders of the 12 tribes brought their own personal offerings in celebration of this momentous, momentous event. In addition to help the Levites transport the tabernacle and its parts during journeys, the tribal leaders also brought wagons and oxen, which Moses apportioned among the Levite families according to their needs. The Midrash relates Moses was reluctant to accept the leaders' offerings, which God had not commanded them to bring. The experience of Nadam and Abinu, who died when they brought this unauthorized incense, was a frightening precedent. But God told Moses that the intention of the leaders was pure, and their offer offerings were worthy of acceptance. Although the 12 leaders brought identical offerings, they arrived at their formulations independently, and they intended different symbolisms in each of their choice of components. 
The Midrash discusses these inner meanings, for example, as Neshon's offering from the tribe of Judah symbolized the fathers of the universe in Israel and some of the paramount events in history. Each of the gifts had symbolism. The numerical value of the Hebrew word for the silver, silver bowl, which the Hebrew word is parat kasek, is 930, which corresponds to the years of, of Adam. Its weight was 130 shekels, corresponds to the age in which Adam and Eve had Seth. Seventy shekels correspond to the 70 nations that descended from Noah. These are just a couple of the examples of the rabbi's interpretations of the symbolism of these offerings. The point being that there is significance in the way the gifts of the 12 tribes were presented in the Torah. The Jewish people, during the first 12 days of Nisan, celebrate each of the tribes, because these, these gifts came one day after another for 12 days, that were presented in this week's Torah portion called Nassau. The thought is that though each of the 12 tribes gave the same gift, they are each different. And through their differences in talents and gifts provide strength, the strength that created a nation. Very similar to our own nation, that our strengths come from our differences and our ability to allow our differences to work together for a common purpose. The nation of Israel had 12 distinct tribes that used their differences in the service of God. As they came together in the tabernacle in the presence of God, they aligned themselves for a common purpose. Israel was now ready to depart from Mount Sinai. They no longer needed to stay at Mount Sinai to hear the voice of the Almighty. The Lord had fulfilled the plea of Moses, which was, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here, in Exodus 33:15, With the creation of the tabernacle, God would travel with the nation of Israel to the promised land. Those of you that don't uh, study Torah a lot may not know about this, but this is a book called uh, Walk Numbers. It's by Dr. Jeffrey Enoch Feinberg. He, um, he, he, it's a series. He's got it for every one of the, um, you know, the Torah books. So... Um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, when I read the, the complete Jewish Bible has got all of each week's Torah portions broke down where the seven readers would have read it in the synagogue. It's a beautiful thing. And there's a lot of stuff in there that gives you some of the culture and better understanding of the Torah portion. Dr. Feinberg does a great job of breaking down the Torah portion and those seven different sections and, and giving you a little summary of each of the different seven sections. And as he ends each week's Torah portion, he, um, he gives you this thing called talk your walk and walk your talk. Sort of like Rabbi Rene used to say, walkie-talkie, you know? <laughs> I love that. God com commands Moshe and Nassau to elevate the Levites. Each clan previously caught now, Kershon and Marari, Marari is lifted up to perform special tasks. Those of age get counted again and assigned to assist the holy priesthood in serving the nation. They purify the camp, set up and consecrate the tabernacle, receive offerings from each tribe, and dedicate the altar. Then Moshe enters and hears the voice of God. 
Every week we also have a half Torah reading and a Brit Hadashah reading. In the half Torah reading, Samson's supernatural birth to a barren woman is prophesied by an angel. The woman is commanded to avoid grapes and wine, and her son's hair must be uncut and remain uncut for life. In return for fidelity of his Nazarite vow, Samson receives supernatural strength that delivers the nation from the Philistine foes. In the Brit Kadashah reading, anyone elevating Yeshua as Lord must remain strictly faithful to the covenant. Even as Yeshua gives his life and is subsequently exalted but to the right hand of God, so now those who believe in him must give their lives to become his servants. God elevated Israel, Israel among the nations when, when its priests, Levites, and judges stayed holy to their commitments. Now those who elevate Yeshua are also lifted up. This is the walk your talk. Do you walk in the light? Walking in the light is not difficult for one whose conscience is sensitive to God's spirit. Those who choose to walk in darkness, scripture says, choose to become slaves to the demands of the flesh. There's no getting around the need to exercise discipline. The priests and the Levites avoided unkosher foods and maintained ritual purity on those days when they entered God's holy place to serve on behalf of the nation. Samson, for all his lust, maintained the oddity of uncut hair, showing clearly that he'd been set apart to serve the living God. Has the Lord called you to the rigors of a disciplined life? Remember, the, spruit, the fruits of the Spirit contain self-control. They include self-control. By walking in the light, but walking in the light goes way beyond self-control. Walking in the light requires you to abide in a spiritually pure state that, it can, that can involve dying to self in moment-to-moment -moment ways. Perhaps someone intends to do you harm, but you must avoid angry words spoken in a fit of anguish and pain. Perhaps you want to feel comfortable, but God calls you into service. Are you motivated to comfort the flesh or stay on the call of the Lord? So that's my teaching for today. Hope all of you enjoyed that. Um, I'm going to be back doing this again next week. You get two weeks in a row. Actually, you're supposed to have three weeks in a row, but last week I had something going on, and we had um, Shabbat, and I think it was a long day anyway here. So... Um, let's end this with a, uh, with a word of prayer. Next week, I'm going to be doing the, the Torah portion for next week as well. So um, if y'all enjoy the Torah portions, then that's what I do. Heavenly Father, Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King, thank you so much for this glorious Shabbat day and for allowing me to be in your presence and to um, speak to your people with your words from you. Father, be with us this day as we go through the day. Provide us safety on our, on our return homes as, um, as we complete our day.
May all of us, each of us, as we come in contact with people in the world, show that you are in our lives, show you to others, so that others may know who you are. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.